0: wanted to have your own podcast, but you just didn't know where to start. I know that it used to be me until I uh, was told about Anchor.fm. Anchor.fm is one of the best podcasting platforms out there because it's free. They help you with distribution, getting onto all the various podcasting platforms. They have tools for editing and for creating all the podcasts, uh, and they even have monetization tools. It's a really, really great app and website. I highly recommend it. If you want to get your own podcast going, go and download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. I can't recommend them highly enough. So download that free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm so you can get started making your own podcast. Hey guys, welcome to another episode of filter on this show. We recognize that the world can be a confusing place to live in And so what I seek to do is to equip you to live with biblical clarity in our confusing world so that you can face the chaos of life with wisdom, integrity, and courage. The success and survival of our American Republic is never a guarantee. Our country is filled with tensions over competing ideas, social movements, political divisions, and a crumbling trust in our institutions. My guest on today's show argues that we need to take a look at the nature of democratic government in America and why the founders designed it in such a way. He argues that they were fundamentally driven by a belief in the fallenness of man and how government should curtail that reality. His name is Robert Tracy McKenzie, and we discussed his new book, We the Fallen People, The Founders and the Future of American Democracy. Robert Tracy McKenzie has his Ph.D. from Vanderbilt University and is the author F. Holmes Chair of Faith and Learning and a professor of history at Wheaton College. His books include Lincoln Knights and Rebels, A Little Book for New Historians, and The First Thanksgiving, What the Real Story Tells Us About Loving God and Learning from History. Before we dive into this episode, let me encourage you to subscribe to our email list so that you get all the latest episodes and content sent directly to your inbox visit the link in the show notes and you can sign up on my website. Also, be sure that you're subscribed to Filter wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get all future episodes right on your homepage and uh, and notifications as well for whenever we publish new episodes. If you're helped by this content, we'd really appreciate it if you left us a rating and review or shared this show with your friends. Leave Filter a five-star rating on Spotify and include a review on Apple Podcasts. It'll only take a minute of your time And when you take these simple steps, it greatly helps us to get the message of biblical clarity out to more people. Well, without any further delay, let's jump into this conversation that I got to have with Dr. Robert Tracy McKenzie. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Aaron, it's my pleasure to be with you. Well, I've been looking forward to it. Like I was telling you before, uh, your book caught my eye, and I've I've been really interested in it. And so, uh, it's been a pleasure to uh, look into it a little bit. I uh, ha- haven't uh, finished it, but look into it some, and uh, get to talk to you today. We already got to hear your bio, but just tell us a little bit more about your background. Uh, some of what you were sharing with me before we started.
1: Sure. Yeah. I uh, I've been a professor of American history now for thirty four years, uh, but actually spent. Uh, the bulk of the time, not in my current institution, but in a large uh, research university. I was at the University of Washington for uh, more than two decades uh, and had the opportunity to come to Wheaton College uh, in 2010, Uh, and here I I focus uh, on U.S. history broadly, and I train um, students about how to think Christianly uh, about uh, our past.
0: Excellent. And I think that's a great project that we should learn how to think Christianly about history. I think that's something that a lot of us don't really consider is that there is a a way to view uh, not just our spirituality and ethics, but also history, science, and uh, economics in every field as a Christian through the biblical worldview. So I, I absolutely love that. And that's why I was excited to have you on we're talking about your book today called we the fallen people it's a new book that you have out um i think it's an interesting book to have out right now because we are uh living in a time in our culture where um there's a lot of debate over our history and there's a lot of debate over our founding what it means and so uh, i think that your book is very timely and helping us to think through these issues Uh, But in the book, what you write is that, or at least how you start is you you talk about how there are really only two reasons for one to believe in the idea of democracy. Can you explain those two reasons to us uh, why they're relevant to believing in democracy? Uh, And then what are the results? Uh, Just Mm -hmm. just briefly, because we're going to get into that a lot more. What are the results of following those two different lines of thought?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, the idea uh, actually is not mine originally. I take it from uh, the Christian apologist C.S. Lewis in one of his um, lesser known uh, essays. Uh, he almost as an aside says, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he says, you know, boiled down, there's just two reasons that could, we would logically endorse democracy that we would logically, uh, you know, advocate majority rule as the guiding principle. He said, one is because you have faith in human nature uh, and the other is because you don't have faith in human nature. Uh, He he elaborates on that uh, in a way that may not, you know, immediately make sense to you. But uh, once he explains it, I think it does become clear. So he says, on the one hand, you might think that men and women are by nature so good and so wise Uh, that everyone's voice deserves to be heard, and that the general welfare uh, suffers when everyone's voice isn't heard. Uh, Lewis then said, you know, that is, I believe, he says, that is the false romantic understanding of democracy. He says, on the other hand, uh, you may believe that men and women are by nature so wicked, and I actually that's the exact word that he uses that jars our ears today because uh, we just do not speak about human nature in that way, He says, you may believe that men and women are so wicked by nature uh, that none of us can be trusted to exercise unlimited power over our our neighbors. He says that, I believe, is the true ground of democracy. He goes on to say, he says, I believe in democracy because I believe in the fall of man. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that becomes really sort of the framework for the book, the idea that um, there are more than one reason to embrace democracy and to try to get readers to consider the idea, first of all, to ask themselves, you know, what is my sort of implicit foundation for believing in democracy? But I really want to make the argument for Christians uh, to consider that broadly American cultures embrace democracy for the wrong reason. You know, we, we hear so much today uh, about uh, the challenges facing American democracy, about the polarization uh, that divides us. Uh, about the fragility of democracy, all of which I think is is true. Uh, but I think before we can address those problems, we sort of have to go back to basics, to square one, and really just wrestle with, why do we believe in democracy in the first place? Uh, and so that's really what I had in mind uh, in the way that I framed the book.
0: Yeah. And the central thesis of your book, or one of them at least, is that what the reasons we embrace democracy today are very different than the reasons that the founders uh, of the
1: and, unique
0: uh, and, and how did that shape our country's beginning?
1: So um, one of the things that I try to do uh, in the book is just to model the value uh, of thinking historically. And, and one of the ways that uh, I think history uh, can, can serve us It's just to show us that the way that we see the world, the values that we hold um, often are uh, sort of situated in a particular historical moment. They're not the way people have always thought. Uh, And once we realize that, it sort of allows us to see them a little bit more clearly, to be a little bit more self-conscious of them. And I think that um, this is a sort of a classic example that I begin the book by going back to the uh, values primarily of those founders who were involved in the creation of the Constitution. Uh, And I asked, uh, you know, what was their understanding of human nature and how did that relate to their thinking about the proper structure uh, of government? And one of the things that became very clear uh, was uh, that the framers of the Constitution uh, absolutely believed that a successful framework of government had to rest on an accurate understanding of human nature. It had to be realistic about uh, what motivates men and women in their behavior. Uh, and to generalize broadly, uh, the framers uh, assumed that human nature was selfish. Uh, my my students often find it difficult to, to I don't know, to sort of bring the kind of nuance that's necessary to this question. They They hear that the framers didn't think that men and women are basically good. And so they said, oh, so they thought we're all evil. And that's not how they would have expressed it. They their their view is actually much more complicated than that. They they believe that men and women were capable of acts of great courage or kindness or self-sacrifice. They wouldn't have denied that for a moment, and they hoped that we would all aspire to that. But they said that basically our default motive is self-interest. Uh, if you mm-hmm. had to have one word to characterize their understanding of human nature, uh, it would be self-interested uh, or, or selfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what that meant was, uh, is that when our, or my, when when my self-interest clashes with the general welfare, my human nature says, well, that's too bad for the general welfare. I need to do what's best for me. Uh, and so they took that assumption to the framework of the Constitution. Uh, and what that led to more than anything else was their axiomatic assumption that power is always dangerous. It's It's always a threat to liberty is the way that they would Uh, have most commonly phrased it. Power is always a threat to liberty, because what power does is give us the ability to implement our agenda uh, of self-interest as we understand it, uh, and our ability to do that even at the um, uh, detriment of those around us. So they would have said that power is dangerous if it's wielded by a king. They would have said that power is dangerous if it is wielded by an aristocratic minority and they would have said that power is dangerous, even when it's wielded by a popular majority. Uh, and so they take that understanding to the framework of the Constitution. And all of those features of the Constitution that we all learned about in junior high school, uh, you have you know, the separation of powers and the three branches, you have the checks and balances. All of those grew out of an understanding that power is a threat to liberty, which rested on their understanding that human nature is basically selfish so I, I would argue that it's almost the case that there's not a line in the Constitution that is not flowing out of this understanding uh, of human nature. Uh, and I really think that's, I just don't think that's a very debatable proposition. I, I think it's very easy to demonstrate. What's uh, the challenge then for readers uh, is to sort of ask themselves, so what? So uh, do I care? Uh, and so what I also try to do after uh, overviewing the the framers' understanding of human nature, is I just look to uh, Scripture, I look to uh, Old and New Testament um, uh, declarations, uh, to the historic Protestant confessions, uh, to uh, other sorts of uh, evidence we have on uh, themes in church teachings uh, over the centuries, uh, and I say, you know, were, were they consistent with uh, revealed truth? And I think, I think they were. You know, one of the debates that a lot of Christians get sucked into with regard to our history uh, is the debate over whether the the leading founders were devout Orthodox Christians in some way that, you know, that we would uh, define. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's really difficult to answer. Yeah. On the other hand their understanding of human nature is not difficult to answer because they talked about it all the time uh, and they thought it was absolutely central to their task of creating a government that would, would uh, promote justice and flourish. Uh, and so I really think that's where our attention should should start. And when we start there, it can challenge us to sort of rethink how we think about democracy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, it, we, uh, we, we cannot... Um look into the hearts of the founders to figure out where they devout followers of Christ, like you said, or at least Orthodox. But we can look at what they believed about the world, uh, power, uh, humanity, and see at the very least a very, very heavy influence of the Christian worldview, uh, especially in terms of human nature. And, uh, and yeah, like you said, self-interest, that is something that you see come up very often whenever you read uh, the founders and their thoughts. Can you help people just for I think a lot of us are uh, our remembrance of civics might be a little dusty. And so can you help us just give some specific examples of what, how they framed, uh, designed the government and framed the Constitution so that self-interest would work uh, against one another and uh, prevent an authoritarian rule, whether that be by an aristocracy, popular democracy or, uh, or one person, a king.
1: Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. And, and so we can approach it in, in sort of two ways. One is um, the, the, the way that they structured the government of the Constitution to um, sort of create curbs on the government itself and the way that they structured the Constitution in order to shield the government from popular pressure. Uh, the way that James Madison, who was one of the leading um, members of the Constitutional Convention, the way that he put it in the Federalist Essays, which were these essays written to promote ratification of the Constitution, uh, he says you must uh, construct a government in such a way uh, that it allows it to control the governed, but also obliges it to control itself. Uh, And so both of those things were very important. So we can deal with them both um, in turn. But let's think about the way that they structured the government to try to keep government from being too powerful. Uh, One of the most basic ways we could just start with is the division of the legislative branch into two chambers. Uh, They actually saw that as uh, extremely uh, important. Uh, The House of Representatives, we don't think about this this way anymore, uh, but the House of Representatives was to be the chamber that represented the people. And that's sort of why they use that name. It was to be the one branch of government that was directly responsible uh, to popular pressure. The United States Senate, we tend to forget this uh, today because it's not this way anymore, but the United States Senate was not popularly elected at all. Uh, senators were chosen by the state legislatures uh, and they were chosen for longer terms. So the idea was that the Senate would be somewhat less uh, directly responsible to people than the House of Representatives. Uh, The idea was that both of these chambers would, in theory, be uh, quite zealous to control their own uh, prerogatives. Uh, And so they would um, not look kindly on one chamber sort of uh, taking sort of greater uh, influence over another. So, for example, uh, all uh, revenue measures were supposed to originate in the House of Representatives. That was their sort of particular area of uh, particular concern. Uh, The Senate was to have a voice in international affairs, in treaties uh, specifically. Uh, And so uh, Madison assumed that because individuals were self-interested, and if you give different branches of government different kinds of prerogatives, if another branch begins to try to uh, sort of encroach upon its um, uh, territory, the other um, uh, division, uh, that they would push back. Uh, And so uh, Madison put it uh, this way. He said, uh, ambition must be uh, able to push back against ambition. Uh, and ambition, by the way, was was not a virtue in the 18th century. It was the desire for power. That's the way it was thought of. Uh, and, and Madison says, um, uh, it, it's a sort of unfortunate that we have to have these kinds of, of checks. But he says, what is government itself, but the greatest of all uh, commentaries on human nature? So what, what the framers didn't anticipate was political parties. They didn't think that Uh, there would be be these parties that would place party above all other sorts of uh, loyalties. They assumed that senators would be thinking of themselves self-consciously as senators and congressmen self-consciously as congressmen. Uh, And they would both be zealous for their own uh, division. Uh, The same really with regard to the courts and with regard to the executive. They, They thought that the distribution of power across these different divisions would actually force uh, the different uh, branches to be constantly sort of pushing and hitting against the other, uh, but that ambition would be thwarted because they would run up against the ambition of of some other members of the government. One of the things that the framers um, sort of took as axiomatic, which is hard for us to understand today, was that in a free society, the majority must rule but because human nature has fallen, the majority will not always be just. Uh, so they, they never imputed kind of moral authority automatically uh, to the decision of the majority. So some of the other features of the Constitution that then embody this view of human nature are those uh, features that, that sort of both give people power through regular elections, but also shield government from popular pressure. Uh, so uh, you know, just to repeat what we've already covered, it's really only the House of Representatives is popularly elected. The Senate is not. The uh, legis- excuse me, judicial branch is not. Uh, the president was not, and 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 we for- forget that we have this bizarre uh, system of the Electoral College that's um, something we all wrestle with and it's controversial today. Uh, but the main thing to understand about the ele- uh, Electoral College from the viewpoint of the framers. Uh, is it just established a, a mechanism uh, by which uh, state legislatures and the House of Representatives would ultimately elect uh, a president? Uh, there was really no support for popular election of the president at the Constitutional Convention. And hmm. the first eight <clears throat> presidential elections, they didn't even record the popular vote. <laughs> uh, and so they really had the idea that much of the government would be shielded from direct pressure, and yet. Uh, every you know two years, uh, a new House of Representatives would be elected so that there would be constantly this sort of popular involvement, uh, and yet somehow curbed uh, from the ability to sort of use its power to run roughshod over uh, the minority.
0: Yeah, and I think that something you said is really important that we often forget about today is how Uh, because they believed in the fallen nature of people that the majority would not always be right. The majority would not always be just. And so therefore, whatever the majority desired was not necessarily right or just. And I think that's uh, very often overlooked or misunderstood today. (laughs) Um, And so it's great that we have these checks and balances, like you said. And it's great that we have a Constitution, a Declaration, Bill of Rights, which uh, is intended to enshrine our inalienable rights so that if even 85% of the majority wants to take away one of my rights, they should not be able to, right? Um, But you argue that America abandoned this foundation in uh, a belief in the self-interested nature of people a long time ago, that we abandoned that And uh, and that this has led to some changes. What happened to our understanding of people's fallen? When did that change and uh, what has been some of the consequences of it?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And that's a really important theme uh, in um, the book. And it's an important theme in our understanding of early American democracy. So I leap sort of leapfrog forward in the book from the Constitutional Convention, which was in 1787 to the uh, first uh, election. Uh, in which Andrew Jackson is a candidate in 1824. We often think of um, Jacksonian democracy as a pretty significant new uh, era uh, in American history. And so we sort of leap forward there. And we're really only talking about a a movement of about 40 years or so. And by that period, 40 years after the creation of the Constitution, uh, there's already the beginnings of a way of talking about uh, political elections and talking about uh, voters in particular that has embedded in it really a repudiation of the understanding of human nature is essentially selfish. So um, you'll you'll see that manifest in a variety of ways. Uh, you have um, journalists increasingly now saying that any uh, any worldview that questions the basic good sense and wisdom of the people. Uh, is absurd and uh, ridiculous. Uh, you have uh, prominent um, uh, historians, actually really one of the earliest historians in the United States who becomes a speechwriter for Andrew Jackson, uh, who says um, that the, uh, the voice of God inhabits the will of the majority. Uh, and uh, he doesn't coin the term, it's very old, but he says, we, we agree that the voice of the people is the voice of God. Wow. Uh, you have writers like Herman Melville uh, you know, the author of Moby, Moby Dick, uh, which we all cite and nobody reads, I think, anymore. Uh, but one of the um, characters in a different uh, Melville novel uh, says uh, at one point in an extended dialogue, he says, The Messiah has come, and he has come in us. Uh, that, that idea that uh, what sets America apart is this glorification of the people, and in particular, the wisdom of the people and the virtue of the people. Uh, and then you have Andrew Jackson, uh, who doesn't cause these things, but he really embodies this new way of, of thinking. So Jackson is the first president uh, who will say that the, the will of the people is sort of intrinsically morally authoritative. So he'll say in various public addresses, you know, that the people are characterized by virtue, uh, by wisdom, that they are incorruptible. Uh, that as long as the will of the majority is followed, he has no fear ever uh, for uh, the future of the, of the country. And that's a kind of rhetoric that we just take for granted today. I mean, what, what political figure doesn't in some way sort of pay tribute to our uh, wisdom, at least if he wants our vote, right? Uh, but when we go back and listen to that in light of what we've read from the framers of the Constitution, it does sort of jar our ears. We realize that it hasn't always been this way, uh, that the framers sort of explicitly repudiated this way of of thinking. Uh, And what had happened within two generations was Americans had largely turned that upside down. So I call that the great reversal. Uh, And uh, I think it's just good for us to be aware of this for many reasons. But one, I think, is that uh, we often um, sort of fall into this way of thinking where we think, you know, everything that's gone wrong with American democracy is something that's happened, um, you know, fairly recently. Um, I once had a pastor who said, you know, everything bad uh, came after the Beatles arrived in America or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and it's just, it's it's good for us to, to be aware that some of these uh, transitions have a very long history. And in particular, it's good for us to be aware of this because if, if a characteristic in the culture around us has always been that way in our lifetime, it's often difficult for us to think critically about it. Uh, it's, it's the idea that something that has always been there becomes thought of as natural. I mean, why would we agonize over the law of gravity? It just, just is, right? Uh, and um, one of the values of history is that we see that some of the ways that we think haven't always been uh, the prevailing way of thinking. And that then puts the burden on us to ask ourselves, okay, so why do I think about this in the way that I do? Uh, And the answer, so many times, is well, it's the it's the particular context into which we were born, Uh, and we just absorb so much of our worldviews are just absorbed by Mm -hmm. osmosis, not because we have thought systematically about something, much less held it up to the light of scripture. We've just absorbed it, and I Mm -hmm. think that's true in much of our thinking about democracy. Yeah. And so what
0: changed in American democracy and in government uh, as a result of this new movement in thinking about human nature and this new political rhetoric?
1: Well, you know, in the short run, I'm not sure that there are, uh, you know, apart from the r- rhetoric, uh, there's not going to be a lot of um, immediate kinds of. Uh, transformations or or changes. I think these kinds of shifts uh, in thinking, because they're so foundational, also take time uh, to sort of work their way out. Uh, but I, I do believe it has a lot of implications or consequences. Um, one of the things that, uh, that I think you can link to this positive view of human nature uh, is that uh, Americans become more sympathetic with and susceptible to uh, what scholars call populism or a populist appeal uh, you know some of your listeners may have you know heard references to populism in in recent years it's a phenomenon that's not only important in the United States it's important in uh, Latin America in good parts of Eastern Europe um, uh, and, and so it's an important phenomenon populism just to, to sort of define it really briefly is just a way of framing political issues populism uh, posits typically a kind of really foundational contest or struggle between the people and some threat to their well-being Uh, and that threat can be from any number of, of of locations uh if you're sort of on the right in your politics you may see that threat from uh established entrenched bureaucrats or um uh, academic elites or Hollywood liberals or something like that, if you're sort of leaning to the left in your politics, you may think about corporate uh, America, uh, the, the 1% uh, or um, some, some other kinds of um, threats to the well-being of the people. The, the framers of the constitution, because of their understanding of human nature, uh, were, were never comfortable with framing issues in this way. Uh, And they often would have said that uh, a individual who's aspiring for uh, votes, who presents uh, a struggle between the people and their enemies, they would have defined that person as a demagogue, uh, which was never a a compliment at all. They they assumed that a demagogue was trying to manipulate popular opinion uh, as a springboard to their own uh, ambitions for for power. What that sort of boils down to, if I could sort of bring in a 20th century voice, uh, you know, the the Russian dissident uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn famously wrote in one of his books that uh, the line between or the line uh, that separates good and evil doesn't run between nation states or political parties or classes; that it runs right through every human heart. The framers would have accepted that; that they would have said that this tendency to selfishness. Uh, touches every uh, human heart. Uh, and I think that's a robust biblical understanding of sin as well. It touches, we, we are all fallen. There's none of us good, no, not one. Uh, as, as Americans begin to embrace this very positive view of human nature, uh, although they wouldn't have said this explicitly, they're less and less thinking that the line between good and evil runs within their own hearts, because they're increasingly thinking that they're basically good. Uh, And so that when someone comes along and says, you are all really good, but there is an evil outside force that is threatening you, uh, that can be a a captivating uh, argument. Uh, And so I think Andrew Jackson even begins to do that. Jackson begins to tell uh, his followers uh, that even his own party is not always to be trusted, uh, that career politicians are um, in it for their own uh, interests. Uh, and that only he really can be trusted. And so this is actually, I think this is one of the dangers of a positive view of human nature. Um, we actually don't fear power if we think human nature is basically good, uh, as long as power is wielded by somebody on our side. Uh, and, and so, um, Andrew Jackson will take a, a variety of steps that really clothe the presidency with greater power than ever before. Uh, I think the framers would have shuddered at some of the things that he did, uh, but many, many Americans applauded it. Uh, and so this this view of human nature is basically good, really gets in the way of thinking Christianly about institutions, uh, about political movements, about uh, the... Um, uh, the way that power is used governmentally. And so I do think it has all kinds of consequences.
0: Yeah. So if we were to start moving back towards a more Christian way of thinking about uh, power, government institutions, what what would change, in other words?
1: You know, that's a great question. And uh, practically, it's impossible to say for sure. One of the things, in fact, even before I answer your question, I, w- I want to tweak it just a, a, a little bit. I, I I don't want my readers to think uh, in terms of solutions primarily. Uh, whether that means, uh, you know, I'm going to read this book, hoping it'll help me know how Christians can be more effective in politics. Mm-hmm. That would be one kind of problem we had in mind or I'm going to read this book because I want to know how to sort of heal our American democracy, although that's a you know perfectly reasonable uh, desire. I really wrote this book uh, because I want Christians to be thinking about their testimony to the world. And when we change our thinking about our testimony, it sort of enables us to think a little bit uh, more uh, in a way that distinguishes our faithfulness in the results that accrue. Uh, I, I think the, the results are up to, to God on, on some of always. ways. Uh, and, and so, although I have some thoughts about how uh, things might change in terms of our politics, I'm much more concerned about uh, Christian's behavior. Uh, and so one of the things I, I think, first of all, uh, this is a major theme of the book, is I, I really would love to challenge Uh, Christ followers who are also engaged in um, our experiment in self-government, I would love to challenge those Christ followers to remind themselves constantly of two foundational principles of Christian theology. One is the idea of original sin. That's really sort of what we've been talking about, the idea that uh, the implications of the fall touches everyone, every era, every part of the world, every individual. The other would be the imago dei, the idea that we all are created in the image of God. And that image has been um, uh, corrupted, but not eliminated. Uh, And so uh, I would love to to see us sort of go into the voting booth. Also, just uh, in the way that we uh, listen to political rhetoric, in the websites that we endorse, the tweets that we share, we would be reminding ourselves that I'm fallen and every political leader every political party every political movement that i endorse is fallen and on the other hand every individual that i oppose politically is created in the image of god is no ordinary human being uh, is fearfully and wonderfully made uh, in the image of the creator and i would hope i would hope that that would lead to more humility and to greater charity and if the world looks at that and says how politically naive, how unrealistic, well, i can live i can live with that. i mm. you know i i just don't know that we're called to results. and in fact i do believe that the moment we think that uh the temptation to compromise in order to accomplish those results becomes enormous. i think we're called to to faithful faithfulness. uh and so that's 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 a beginning. You know, a political scientist would want to say, "Okay, but how is that going to affect, you know, this or that uh, element of the political system? Not really operating on that level, Mm -hmm. um, if you understand what I'm saying.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so good because we're Christian or not and right or left. It's so easy for us to start um, attaching the value of ideas to the value of the people who hold those ideas. And whenever we look at ideas and worldviews, uh, it's perfectly okay for us to say that's good and that's bad, that's worthful and that's worthless. (laughs) Once again, speaking about ideas. Uh, But then we start to look at our uh, people who are on the other side of the aisle from us or in a different camp and say they hold these ideas that I disagree with. I think they're bad ideas. And so then I start saying, well, they're bad people. And uh, now and, uh, we, we can be realistic, once again, about the fallenness of human nature. There are certain people out there who uh, should be seen as bad actors. But by and large, uh, we need to be incredibly discerning, generous, especially towards our neighbors uh, mm-hmm. in, in evaluating ideas and, and, and living together um, in, in Christian love. So I think that's really good. That's a great reminder. Uh, but you spend a considerable amount of space in the book kind of reexamining Alexis de Tocqueville. In his uh, analysis of America, uh, remind us of Alexis de Tocqueville, who he is for those who might not remember or maybe just haven't heard of him at all. And talk about what can we learn, what insights can be gained from his uh, his commentary on democracy in America?
1: Yeah, I, I love to talk about Tocqueville. Uh, Alexis de Tocqueville was a, a French aristocrat uh, born uh, just after uh, eighteen hundred. In France, uh, and uh, who comes to the United States in um, uh, 1831 at the age of 25. Uh, he, may, almost by any measurement, uh, was precocious, was brilliant, um, and came to uh, the United States basically because he wanted to understand what the future of the world would be like as democracy uh, became more and more and more common. Uh, around the world. I, I like to joke with my students who study abroad, say for six months or so, I say, set your sights high, you know, uh, uh, go abroad to to understand the, the future of the world or something like that, uh, which is what Tocqueville is doing. It's very personal for Tocqueville. Uh, his parents uh, were newly married young adults at the time of the French Revolution. And as uh, prominent members of a prominent aristocratic family, uh, they got caught up in, in the social upheaval of the French ev- Revolution. Uh, they were imprisoned uh, for many, many months in fear that they were going to be executed as tens of thousands of individuals were mm-hmm. uh, during the French Revolution. They did survive, uh, but they were you know permanently affected by that. Uh, and their son, Alexis, who was born after this, uh, sort of inherited that kind of concern. In other words, TOEFL, uh, Understood that popular movements don't always lead to just society. sometimes they lead to to some horrific outcomes. He believes that the United States is sort of on the cutting edge on the, the sort of the crest of the wave of growing democracy in the Western world. Uh, he thinks there's no society in the world more democratic, and so he wants to come and figure out what he can learn and And so he spends about ten months, not quite ten months, in the United States. Uh, he travels to seventeen states. Uh, He um, interviews more than 200 people, uh, and then he goes home and he thinks about what he had seen and he reflects on it and ultimately writes this work, Democracy in America, which is often uh, described by scholars as the most important book ever written, either on democracy or on America. Uh, And and so it really is uh, remarkable. He talks about everything. Uh, He wants to understand how democracy affects popular culture, how it affects theater, how it affects literature, how it affects history, um, uh, and obviously he spends a great deal of time thinking about how it affects uh, politics and just the whole experiment of government. He's not a, a Christian. I don't believe that was a Christian. It's hard to say absolutely for sure, but his private letters suggest that he was a seeker uh, who uh, really was, for most of his life, never at peace in terms of his own uh, understanding of um, of God and God's uh, gospel, but as an outsider, uh, he's a sympathetic—he's a sy- sympathetic critic. Uh, he wants to see democracy flourish. Uh, he also says that um, he has both fear and hope for it. So, what does he bring to the table? Well, one of the first things uh, I think, maybe the most important thing, is uh, that Tocqueville actually came to the study of democracy without what I call in the book, uh, democratic faith. Uh, I argue that just in the popular way that we think about democracy today, we just assume that democracy is intrinsically just. So when we encounter evidence of injustice in our society, uh, we say, well, you know, that's not right. That is a sign that our democracy is not yet perfect. But if we continue to make our society more and more democratic, truly democratic, these instances of injustice will go away. So what it sort of boils down to is that democracy just becomes the synonym for the good society, and there's no problem that more democracy won't solve. That's what I call democratic faith. Tocqueville does not have democratic faith. Uh, he uh, actually is going to take it as as obvious that democracy itself is morally indeterminate, uh, and he does that because. He shares the same understanding of human nature as the framers of the Constitution. He believes that human nature is very mixed, and he talks about his own nature, and he says he's part angel and part beast. Uh, he, uh, you know, In a Christian term, we might talk about uh, the, the new man and the old man, or the spirit and the flesh. He sees that struggle within himself. And because he sees that struggle and assumes that it is a universal uh, struggle, he does not believe that the will of the majority is automatically just. So he starts with that idea. Uh, the moral indeterminacy of democracy, uh, and then the concept that probably he's best remembered for is what Tocqueville called the tyranny of the majority. Uh, in, in that respect, he, he meant a couple of things. One that the the majority actually could endorse uh, policies that were absolutely unjust to the minority. He actually arrives right in the middle of the American debate over the removal of Native American people from the eastern part of the United States that we associate with the Jackson presidency. Uh, And, um, you know, Tocqueville saw that as an example of a majority simply using the power that it had uh, to do what uh, served its own interests, even if it was unjust. Uh, He thought a lot about American slavery, uh, and he saw that as another example of the tyranny of the majority. But he also argued that the power of the majority could be exercised in sort of unseen and abstract ways. So he said the majority can have really sort of oppressive control over opinion. Uh, He said that in the old authoritarian uh, uh, states of, say, Louis XIV in France, that uh, a, a tyrant could enslave the body, but not the soul. He said that in democratic societies, people aren't thrown in jail for their opinions, uh, but they can be effectively ostracized from the discussions in ways that make their lives utterly meaningless to the uh, conversation. So he says in democratic societies, uh, the body is left free, but the soul is often enslaved. Uh, And so what TOEFL is actually writing about, which might resonate with some of us today, he really is sort of anticipating what today gets called cancel culture. He says that in the United States, as long as the majority hasn't decided, there is a robust um, uh, debate about any issue, but that once the majority has made up its mind to disagree with a majority is really to commit sort of political suicide. Uh, he also you know he says that in such a society, um, the most successful political leaders are often not the ones that show courage uh, or independent judgment. They're often the ones that um, are willing simply to be guided by whatever the majority demands. So there's just so much there, and I could uh, go on and on, but uh, uh, he he describes things that are still relevant to our lives today, and he does it as an outsider, which we might think, well, who is he to talk about American democracy? But I would argue that it actually gives him a perspective that it's difficult for a native born American to, to bring to bear.
0: Yeah, and especially as someone... I, that's something I never considered before, the context of Tocqueville coming from the the background of the French Revolution. So especially not just an outsider, but an outsider coming out of the ashes in the, uh, the bloodshed and the horror of the French Revolution, coming over here and saying, uh, showing some appreciation, but then concern. Uh, that is a voice worth listening to because mm-hmm. I think that one of the problems and uh and this might also be one of the things that's contributed to uh, us thinking of uh the people as good is um that america is following more and more kind of the the spirit of the french revolution rather than Mm -hmm. the american uh it's something that Oz guinness uh, a a guest of the show has written about in his uh latest book um and so yeah I, i think that tugville is a voice worth listening to and uh and Always, always fascinating. So we already talked about this a little bit, but just as we come to the close, uh, I just wanted to ask, what is some of the primary takeaways that you want readers of the book or listeners to this show to have regarding what we talked about? Uh, like I said, you already touched on it, but if you have any more takeaways or just next steps, what do you sure. hope for that to be?
1: Sure, yeah. Uh, so, uh, you know, that, that's the $64 question and it's one that I've wrestled a lot with. In my book, I actually devote the final two chapters uh, of the book to some concrete recommendations uh, for what it might look like to apply insights that we've learned in the way that we engage in the public um, square. And I just have a few suggestions uh, that I would mention, uh, particularly for uh, Christian um, listeners, but but not limited just to uh, people of faith. Uh, I think it begins by Uh, taking um, the danger of power seriously. Uh, When we look at American politics today, it's pretty clear to me uh, that if there are any Americans who take the danger of power seriously, they're a minuscule percentage. And here's why I think that. I think the true litmus test of our understanding of power is our willingness to curb power when we ourselves wield it. Uh, and, And what I see is that we're very skeptical of power when our party, whatever that is, is not in the majority. Yeah. Uh, we're not at all suspicious of power when, when we're the ones pulling the trigger, uh, when we're the ones wielding it. Uh, and so I don't see any sizable contingent of Americans today who accept remotely the, f- the framers' understanding of the dangers of power. So I think it starts there always with the emphasis in particular uh, on when we are, are in the majority. Uh secondly, I, I think it's uh important uh to take seriously the power of um of uh the temptation of power to to lure us, to lure the church uh to positions of power. Um one of the things that that Tocqueville uh talked a lot about democracy in America is the vitality of American Christianity. And he actually uh, believed that American Christianity was having a, a significantly positive uh, impact on a democracy as he observed it in the 1830s. And in his interviews, it's one of the questions he asked time and time and time and time again, how do you explain the vitality of Christianity in your land? Uh, and the answer that came back over and over and over again uh, was uh, the separation of church and state. Now, that phrase is a loaded phrase and it can mean a lot of different things to different people uh, at different, at different times. And so I want to be really careful what uh, his uh, interviewees were saying. They weren't saying we're talking about a public square that's devoid of any political, uh, excuse me, religious dimension. We're not talking about an understanding where everyone checks their religious views at the door uh, before they engage in politics. But he was saying uh, what they were telling him uh, is that uh, American churches uh, sort of take pride in not affiliating with uh, a political party uh, or the state. And and Tocqueville compared that to his native France. So at the time of the French Revolution, uh, the monarchy, of course, was the framework of government, and the Catholic Church was officially established in a close partnership with the monarchy. And so Tocqueville said that when a popular movement arises to overthrow the monarchy. They pretty naturally saw religion as the partner of authoritarianism, uh, and so uh, many of those uh, radicals in the French Revolution assumed that it was just as essential to destroy the Catholic Church as it was to uh, overthrow the monarchy. Uh, and Tocqueville thought that it was an enormous mistake. Uh, He argues that despotism can exist without faith, religious faith, but democracy can't. Uh, And he worried uh, that uh, if the United States repeated the pattern of France, uh, that it would actually have a detrimental effect on on religion. He says when religion is not associated with a temporal power, it is free uh, to exercise authority over all. Uh, when it enters into a partnership with temporal power, individuals who might be drawn to it uh, will actually be uh, repulsed. So that's one of the takeaways that I really encourage readers to take seriously. And then the final one is just to take uh, rhetoric seriously. Uh, I argue that the way that we talk about uh, our uh, political values, the way that we discuss our political opponents is always actually uh, carrying a religious message. Uh, it may be a message implicitly about uh, original sin. It may be a message uh, about the image of God uh, in others. Uh, but we're always conveying a religious message. Uh, and so one of the things I really want to challenge Christians today is to not accept the argument that all that matters is policy uh, and that rhetoric is uh, irrelevant. Uh, I think our the votes that we cast always are not just transactional. They're also a form of testimony. Uh, and so I think the way that our Christian assumptions get conveyed most powerfully is often in the rhetoric that we use, even more than the policies that we espouse. And uh, individuals may not agree with that, but I would encourage folks to, to wrestle with that just a little bit uh, before dismissing the idea.
0: Excellent. Good. So once again, the book that we talked about today is We the Fallen People by uh, Tracy McKenzie. Uh, Thank you guys for listening. Tracy, thank you for sharing about the book. Uh, I highly recommend it. I think it's a a great read, uh, a lot to learn, many great insights. Uh, Before we go, do you want to help people uh, if they have if they want to follow any more of your work, uh, learn about your other books? Where would you point them to go to connect with you and learn about your work?
1: Sure. So, I, you know, I've written several books explicitly for Christian readers. And so you can find those on Amazon. You can also um, read uh, some of my uh, shorter essays and learn more about uh, my take on these issues at com. Great.
0: I'll have the link to uh, the website and the show notes, as well as the book, so that uh, anyone who is interested in following you or getting the book, you guys can find that in the link uh, to the show notes. You can find that in the link below in the description on YouTube or on whatever podcast platform you're listening to, to get full show notes for everything that we talked about today. So once again, Tracy, thank you for joining us today on Filter. Uh, I enjoyed it and appreciate your time.
1: My pleasure, Aaron. Thanks. Uh, and God bless your ministry.
0: Thanks for listening. I hope this episode provided you with biblical clarity to live with confidence in our confused world. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch up the latest from me, you can go to my website, aaronchamp.com. While you're there, subscribe to my newsletter so that you can be updated anytime I share new content. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Aaron M. Shamp. Thanks again. And I'll see you next time. Until then,
1: hold fast to the